As Mark mentioned, we're returning this evening to our series in the book of Hebrews and are going to be looking at chapters 10, 11, and 12, 13 over the next four weeks. So tonight it's chapter 10. As we said back at the start of our series, the book of Hebrews is a carefully woven and sustained argument. I suppose a bit like a persuasive essay that you might have written at school. It's one big theme, or its main point, is that Jesus is greater, and its call or exhortation is that the readers do not give up on him. Now, they don't give up on Jesus and return to their old way of life. In particular, that they don't go back to trying to relate to God on the basis of the Jewish law and through the offering of animal sacrifices. So this is Hebrews chapter 10 tonight, and I'm going to read now from verse 1. I've given this first section the title, Christ's Sacrifice is Greater. And the first point under that is that the Old Testament sacrifices didn't really work. The Old Testament sacrifices, they didn't really work. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. Otherwise, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshippers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. We're jumping straight in there to the whole idea of animal sacrifice in the Old Testament. If you don't have much familiarity with the Christian faith, then maybe you don't realize that Christianity developed out of the religion of Judaism, the Jewish religion. Jesus was a Jew. And he came to the Jews as their long-awaited Messiah. He came in fulfillment of all the Jewish prophecies and as, as uh, the fulfillment of the Jewish sacrificial system. Up until the time of his coming and for a little while afterwards, the Jewish priests, they offered animal sacrifices in the temple of Jerusalem as an act of atonement for their own sin and for the sin of the people. There were burnt offerings and grain offerings and fellowship offerings and uh, purification offerings and guilt offerings, all carefully prescribed in the law that was given to Moses and passed on to the people of Israel. There was a big emphasis on blood and the fact that uh, the shed blood represented the life of the, the bull or the goat or the lamb or the dove or the, the pigeon that had been offered. And uh, these various animal sacrifices were offered on the altar again and again, day after day, to deal with sin and to keep God's righteous judgment away from the people. That's what the author's talking about in verse 1. The law, the law given to Moses, is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. In other words, the Old Testament law is just pointing forward to something that is yet to come, something greater. You maybe uh, see your own shadow on the ground as you walk along the street on a, on a bright sunny day. 
or uh, you see the shadow of someone coming round the corner before the person comes round the corner. The shadow on the ground, it's not the person, but it, it tells you something about the general shape and size of the person who's coming. So it is with the law of Moses. All these animal sacrifices just pointed forward to the one true and ultimate sacrifice who would eventually come. They were God's prescribed way at that time of dealing with sin in advance of Jesus' coming. But they didn't really work, as the author says in verse 1. He says, For this reason, it, the law of Moses, can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. Otherwise, would they not have stopped being offered? If the sacrifices have worked, would they not have stopped being offered? If the killing of a bull could have dealt with the problem of human sin and rebellion against God, and if it could have done so once and for all, then would the sacrifice need to have been repeated? Clearly, it did not make perfect those who drew near to worship. Verse 2, for the worshippers would have been cleansed once and for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But they did feel guilty. They knew that they had not been cleansed once and for all. Verse 3, but those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. Sacrifices actually reminded the people of just how sinful they were and their continued need for cleansing. The offerings... In many ways, it it just highlighted their continued sinfulness, their need of a sacrifice that would really work. For verse 4, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. That is the main point of these first few verses. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Another way on TV you get adverts advertising the latest cleaning product. And uh, uh, the basic message is that all these cleaning products over here, they don't really work. Uh, They don't get the sink clean. They don't get the stain out of the white shirt. But if you get this new product that we're selling, uh, or if you pour this new liquid on the stain, then it'll work. It'll truly deal with the problem. Clearly, that sort of comparison has been around for a while. It's not a new line of argument. Since something similar is going on in the book of Hebrews, the author is telling us, pointing out that these Old Testament sacrifices, they didn't really work. The blood of bulls and goats doesn't actually do anything. You kill an animal because that's how God has prescribed and that he is to be worshipped. But actually, it's obvious that it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. The blood of an animal doesn't deal with human sin. The death of an animal is not the same as a human being dying as the just punishment for their sin. The blood of bulls and goats doesn't really work. It doesn't actually make us clean. The author of Hebrews goes on in verses 5 to 10 to back up his point. He quotes a psalm, thereby showing that the Old Testament itself acknowledges that animal sacrifices do not really work. Again, just as you might do in a persuasive essay, you know, you draw in the outside sources, that's what he's doing. 
I'm going to skip over those verses this evening and move on to verse 11, but do take time to read through them this week, perhaps with a study Bible open in front of you to help you understand what's being said. But verse 11 and point number two under this section. The Old Testament sacrifices didn't really work, but Christ's sacrifice worked and was once for all time. Christ's sacrifice worked and was once for all time. Verse 11, day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest, namely Jesus Christ, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, and since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Verse 11 again, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. He has to stay on his feet all day, every day, offering sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice. There's no end to his work. Uh, uh, Some of you maybe feel a certain level of sympathy for that, maybe your own work situation, and you can sympathize with the hardworking priest every day, on his feet all day. But the point is more to do with the contrast. Verse 12, but when this priest, when Jesus Christ had offered for all time one sacrifice for sin on the cross, he sat down at the right hand of God because his work was then complete. It was finished. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. He doesn't even have to keep fighting his enemies. His victory on the cross was so complete that there's no more left to do. He just has to sit back and wait for God to put his enemies, those who oppose him, under his feet on the final day of judgment. You know, like one of those um, reclining electric chairs or you you put your foot up on a stool in in the living room. Christ's enemies are already defeated. It's only a matter of time until they're placed under his feet and forced to acknowledge and submit to his rule and kingship. The contrast, the priest in the Jerusalem temple has to keep standing because the Old Testament sacrifices didn't really work. But Jesus can sit down because his sacrifice is greater His sacrifice worked and was once for all time. Verse 14, for by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. That's certainly a verse that's worth unpacking. Let me do that for just a moment. Just look at what it says with me. For by one sacrifice, that's Jesus' death on the cross in our place, bearing our sin, by his sacrificial death on the cross, he has made perfect forever. He's made those who trust in him, he's made us perfect. He has completely dealt with our sin. He has made us holy. You know, he's given us the status of a saint forever, allowing us to look forward to eternal life with him. He has made us perfect. 
But the verse then adds the words, those who are being made holy. That's what I was talking about the other Sunday morning. Although we have been justified and given the status of saints, and the death penalty for sin has been removed from us as Christians, still our sanctification is an ongoing process. We are being made holy as the Holy Spirit works in our lives and, and, you know, frees us from the power of sin. And one day, we're looking forward to being glorified and for sin's presence to be totally removed. So that's the first section of this passage. Christ's sacrifice is greater. The Old Testament sacrifices, they didn't really work. Christ's sacrifice worked and was once for all time. Again, I'm going to skip over verses 15 to 18 in which the author once more uses Old Testament scripture to back up his point and and to pick up now at verse 19 and the second section of chapter 10 to which I've given the title, Don't Give Up on Jesus. Jesus is greater, therefore don't give up on Jesus. Again, two points under this section. The first being that we ought to draw near to God with confidence. Because of Jesus' sacrifice, we're to draw near to God with confidence, verses 19 to 22. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain that is his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us draw near to God with confidence. Why? Well, because Jesus' sacrifice has opened up the way. Do you remember when Jesus died on the cross, what happened in the Jerusalem temple? Do you remember? If you've uh, heard the story read, you'll perhaps remember that the curtain in the temple was torn in two when Jesus died. You know, that large, heavy curtain, uh, larger and heavier than the curtain on the wall behind me. That large and heavy curtain, the, the barrier, the, the dividing wall between the holy place and the most holy place, it was torn in two from top to bottom. It happened when Jesus died on the cross. At that moment, it was a miraculous happening. Just at that time, it tore in top, top to bottom. I often wonder what the priests in the temple did at that point. Uh, you know, did they panic? How did they fix it? You know, the curtain wasn't supposed to be broken. It was there to protect the priests from the holy presence of God uh, resting above the Ark of the Covenant. There must have been, you know, there must have been a terrific panic. Uh, You know, did they rush in with a ladder? Was, Was the high priest wobbling about there trying to sew it back together again? I don't know, but I've often wondered. Yet the point of the book of Hebrews here is that the way has been opened through the curtain. 
not talking now about the Jerusalem temple, but rather the way into the spiritual throne room of God. We can walk confidently right in to God's very throne room, as if we were a royal servant of the court and had every right to be there. In fact, better yet, as royal children, we can now walk in in a spiritual sense. We can walk into God's holy presence, the heavenly throne room, because that's our home. We belong there. When I was a a teenager, I uh, was quite interested in lights and theater and things, and I managed to work as a stagehand for a few weekends in the Royal Opera House in Belfast. And uh, it was quite a fun experience. It was quite fun seeing what was going on. And uh, I quite enjoyed being able to um, be behind the stage and then go out into the, the front of house and then you know, come back in again. But I was able to do that. You know, I was able to go behind stage because of the past that was hanging around my neck or, you know, or because I was part of the stage team. I had the right to be there to go through the various doors and curtains that divided and see all that was going on. I suppose that's what I think of when I think of having the right to walk behind the curtain and into the most holy place. Of course, the reason I can do that, the reason I can do that, is because, not not because of anything that I have done, but because... I've had my heart sprinkled to cleanse me from a guilty conscience. And I've had my body washed with pure water, as the author says in verse 22. You know, he's using the language of the temple again and the sacrificial system with its use of water to wash the animals and and cleanse the priests and and the ritual sprinkling of blood against the altar as a sign of purification for sin. You know, for those of us who are Christians tonight, that hasn't happened to us in a physical sense, but it has happened in a spiritual sense. We haven't literally been sprinkled or washed, but it is what has happened to us spiritually. And you know, it's happened so effectively that we are now clean forever. Jesus' blood has made us clean. We've been made perfect. And you know, we can enter God's holy presence today, tonight, every day, without any shame or embarrassment, no awkwardness, no no caution needed. Just run right in as we come to our loving Heavenly Father through prayer. So, number one, we're to draw near to God with confidence. Number two, we are to encourage one another to hold on to the Christian faith. There's actually an awful lot of things that might cause us to give up on Christ, to consider giving up our faith, isn't there? It's likely, for instance, that these Christians to whom this book was first written were facing persecution, or or at least they were facing a bit of a hard time Uh, uh, for being some sort of sect, some sort of odd religion. They were probably being encouraged to conform to the Jewish way of doing things or to blend in with the pagan religions around them. Towards the end of the chapter, there's 
a warning to not deliberately keep on sinning. Perhaps these early Christians were facing temptation that they found rather attractive. Give up on Christ and have an easier life because you can then do whatever you like. You can live however you please. No need to struggle to resist temptation. And I wonder if some of these Christians were thinking about giving up because it all seemed a bit unreal. Is Christ really there? Is he really coming back? Am I really going to live with him forever? I think you and I can relate to those pressures, can't we? The pressure to give up on Christ in the face of scorn from friends and family members. The lure of temptation and living a pleasure-focused life. And even the question, is it real? Is Jesus really coming back? You know, Satan uses all those questions to try and draw us away from faith. So what does the writer of Hebrews say? Well, he says, verse 23, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encourage one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. Unswervingly is a good word, isn't it? Uh, The picture that comes to mind is of a car uh, swerving around an obstacle in the road. You know, like last winter with all the potholes that we had, there was uh, one road near us that was particularly bad, and the the cars would swerve around the potholes and narrowly miss the car coming in the other direction, uh, narrowly escape hitting it. You know, unswervingly would have been having, you know, a a jeep or 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 a tractor and just driving along on a straight line, unaffected by the difficulties. Or um, maybe having a tank would be more realistic, given the size of some of the potholes. But that's what unswervingly means. Not getting knocked off path. Not being blown off the straight line course. And what are we told to hold on to? Well, the hope we profess. Verse 23, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, the Christian hope, the Christian faith, our our belief that Christ's sacrifice was sufficient for the forgiveness of our sins, Our, our belief that it is worth living with Jesus as Lord of our life. Our, our belief that He is coming back one day soon to take us to be with Him forever. That is our hope. That's the Christian faith we profess. And why should we do so? Why should we hold on? Well, because God is faithful. God has promised that Christ is coming again and that we are going to be with Him forever. And God is trustworthy. And let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. As in, how we might live the Christian life, avoid temptation, and do good to others. Not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. The quickest way 
to lose your passion as a Christian is to stop meeting with other Christians. I know relationships in churches can be difficult at times. But if we want to hold on to the faith until the end of our life, then don't give up meeting with others. The old illustration of a lump of coal is, is right. You know, when, you, when, you, when, a, when a lump of coal is in the fire, it glows red hot. But you take the lump out and it goes cold. We, we need one another to help us live the Christian life. So don't give up meeting together. You know, when I see young people like yourselves grow up and head off to university or to the world of work, and they don't get into the pattern of, of going to church each week, it really saddens me to hear that. You know, maybe because your work in shifts or or because they're, they're, they're not making regular church going a priority, or because they find it difficult to find a church like the one that they grew up in. They find it difficult to connect with new people, and they just sort of gradually drift away from faith. Or an older person, you've, you've been around the church for years, but you've become a bit disillusioned with the Christian faith. An older person who who doesn't find attending church that easy and, and they start coming less and less and they've lost their love for Christ. It's really sad. But the only way, the only sure way to stay close to God is to do so with other Christians by attending church, listening to the Bible preached, engaging in worship, Sharing life with others. Being there even if you don't find it that fulfilling. Most of us will probably need to change church at some point in our life. It's actually quite difficult to do. And you need to be proactive. If you end up at a new church, find somewhere to serve get stuck in. As a student, um, why not lead a children's Sunday group or get into a one-to-one discipleship group? Join a team? Be part of something? Make being at church every week a priority. Verse 25, do not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. But encourage one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. Jesus is coming back. Let us encourage one another until that day. Let us spur one another on to live the Christian life until Jesus returns. It's hard going at times being a Christian, it does get discouraging or painful. Or, or we get knocked off course with temptation and sin. And so we're told here to encourage one another, to pick one another up, to support one another in the faith, and to look out for one another when times are tough, to pray God's strength 
over one another. It isn't really going to take that long for Jesus to come back. It might not happen in my lifetime, but in comparison to eternity, it will be soon. And if I die before he returns, well, I get a shortcut to the day of the Lord. But the day of the Lord's return is approaching. So let us encourage one another to hold on to the Christian faith, to run the race before us with perseverance, and to reach the victor's crown on that day. I don't have time this evening to go through the rest of the chapter. The author of Hebrews goes on in the verses that follow to warn his readers not to turn their back on Christ and deliberately sin. He also reminds them of the early days of their faith when they held to Christ, even in the face of opposition and suffering. And he concludes the chapter with an exhortation to keep hold of the Christian faith and to persevere until Christ's return. But the message throughout is the same. Jesus is greater. Don't give up on Jesus. Encourage one another to hold on to the faith. Christ's sacrifice is greater. The Old Testament sacrifices, they didn't really work. But Christ's sacrifice worked. And it was once for all time. Therefore, don't give up on Jesus. Draw near with confidence to God. Draw near to Him. And encourage one another to hold on to the faith until the Lord returns. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your death on the cross for us and the cleansing from sin that we receive when we trust in you. Thank you that we are made perfect and are being made holy. Help us, help us, Lord, uh, not to give up on you. Uh, Help us to to draw near to God in confidence and help us to encourage one another in the faith until the day you come back to take us home.